I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 25. We'll be reading over these next few Sundays, we'll be reading, of course, several Psalms because we're getting into the life of the author of a good portion of the Psalms. But Psalm 25, which is a Psalm of David, David wrote these words, verses 4 and 5, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Father, you are ever faithful and we will be eternally grateful. We know, Father, that what we have and who we are is the result of the work of the Spirit of God who indwells the lives of each and every one of your children. We bow before you today. You are the sovereign of the universe and we have submitted to you as the sovereign of our lives. Lord, forgive us when we try to take back some of that sovereignty unto ourselves and choose our own ways. Help us, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on you and to realize that you have nothing in your mind but the very best for us. And even though sometimes the, the discipline or whatever it is seems difficult, Lord, you're there with us. And it's for the purpose of making us into the image of Christ. Lord, bless us today in our study. Open our eyes to truth that you have placed here for our understanding. And Lord, as your word is proclaimed in the second and third services today and in the various classes of this church, we ask that you will be glorified and lives will be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are still in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I'd like to read the first five verses to begin with. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines. And he led and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. We read this passage uh, two weeks ago and began looking at uh, the first portion of it, the, the actual verses I just read. Uh, here we find, of course, David and his men trying to stay out of Saul's reach. This is going to be, of course, the theme, as you know, for the most of the remaining portion of 1 Samuel. And they're hiding in the forest of Hereth. And I mentioned to you last time that the exact location of the forest of Hereth is unknown, partly because there is no forest <laughs> in that area anymore. But if we get back here to Adullam, which is the cave here where David was hiding, and, and here see, you see Laish over here, Lachish over here, and it would be in this region in here somehow, somewhere. Now, Keilah is right about where the little red dot is there, a little bit south of Adullam. And so somewhere west and a little bit north of Hebron and south a little bit east of Adullam, somewhere in here was the forest of Hereth. As they say today, if you go there, there is no forest there. 
Forests have been removed out of this land many, many centuries ago. It's a land of great neglect after the Israelites were driven out by the Romans. The, the Jews were driven out by the Romans in the second century. After that time, it became very neglected as a land and has been exploited with very little input put back into it. Hiding there in this forest. And when you think about this, here is David and his men hiding in the forest from the king. Does that sound a little bit like a story, you know? Robin Hood and his merry men, <laughs> you know, running away from the sheriff of Nottingham and hiding in the forest of Sherwood. Well, this isn't exactly Sherwood Forest, but it's a very similar kind of idea here that we have. By the way, there really was a Robin, uh, but whether, you know, how much of the story is true is still being debated a great deal, even though if you go to Sherwood Forest, they will, of course, tell you all about Robin Hood. While encamped in this forest, news came that the nearby town, maybe five miles away of Keilah, which was a little bit further downhill, that's why the Lord says go down to Keilah. Whenever it says go down in Scripture, it means go down in altitude because there was, there's no concept in Scripture of a map with like you and I go north to Seattle and south to San Francisco, so we go up to Seattle and down to San Francisco. There's no concept like that in Scripture. So down always means downhill. And so go down from the forest to the city of Keilah. Well, here is David, ever the foe of the Philistines, ever the champion of justice, hearing about his, his fellow Judeans being attacked by these enemies that he has fought numerous times and over whom he has had victory after victory. So David goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I've got 400 men. Should I help the city of Keilah against these invaders? Now again, uh, probably through the use of the Urim and the Thummim, Thummim David got an answer, and, and the Lord basically said to him, go down and, 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 and uh, save the city of Keilah. Well, when he told his men, his men said, uh, I don't think we want to do that. We don't even feel very secure here in the forest. Why do we want to go down there and fight the Philistines and expose ourselves in addition to Saul? So David said, well, I'll go back and check again. And it never hurts to go back and ask the Lord a second time just to make sure you heard right the first time. And he went back and the Lord said, I will give the Philistines into your hands. Well, that was good enough for David. So he commanded his men, we're going down to Keilah. And apparently they were willing to obey. And so they went with him. What would be a boon for him and for his men was that they captured all of the livestock that had been brought along with the invading army to, to feed them. Sort of like dinner on the hoof, you know. And, and that was good because how does David feed 400 men plus whatever dependents were there, which will soon become 600 men? How does he feed this group as a, a fugitive? How, how do you do that? So you know, this, this is a big help. This is a plus factor. Well, let's read what happens next. Verse 6, 1 Samuel 23. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now this is a, a statement that is partly a statement of Abiathar being there at Keilah, but also of his previously having come because he came to David originally at the forest of Hereth. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people of war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. 
Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. <clears throat> then David said, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? The Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Word spread very quickly, of course, that David had come to rescue the city of Keilah and to drive out the invading Philistines. When the Philistines had been defeated and slaughtered, we're told that David and his men entered into the city of Keilah. Now, the scripture tells us something about Keilah, which is a bit unusual. It says that it was double-gated and double-barred. That's not a normal condition for a city. There have been a few cities in Israel in history that have been double-gated and double-barred, which usually means double-walled. So this was uh, unusual for a smaller town the size of Keilah. So obviously it was strongly fortified, but not strongly enough to withstand the Philistine attack, particularly since the Philistines were raiding their threshing floors and thus taking away all the food that was stored outside the walls in the threshing floors. They certainly had some food stored inside but probably not enough to withstand a long-term siege. And that plays over into the events of this particular passage we read. Now, why did David go into the city of Keilah after he had saved it? Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, for security, uh, immediate security, get his men inside the city. So if Saul did happen to come charging down the mountain from Gibeah, uh, he, would, he would have some, a line of defense. But secondly, because certainly the people of Keilah wanted to wine him and dine him. After all, he had saved them from, from loss and defeated the Philistines and certainly had to throw a party in a thanksgiving to David and his men for what they had done. Now Saul did not look upon what David had done as a plus. You would think he would think, oh, David drove off the enemy. I, I should be grateful. It's something I don't have to do. But no, he sees this, of course, as another feather in David's cap. You know, David is slaying more of his ten thousands while Saul is only slaying his thousands of the enemy as, as, as Saul would view it. So when Saul hears that David is inside the city, even if it's only a temporary encampment inside the city, he thinks, whoa, I've got David trapped now. I'll have to go down and besiege the city and I've got David trapped and he is not going to be able to get out. And so he gathers his army, calls his men. Of course, that takes some time. Remember, we don't have a standing army here in those days. He probably had, a, of course, a palace guard of a few hundred men, but he needed to gather the thousands. And so we sent out word for the Minutemen, you know, to grab their muskets and slide down the pole and run over there and, and uh, join the army. This took a while. And then, of course, he had to march down. There were no C-5 galaxies or trains or anything else to move the troops. The troops walked, as they have for most of history. And, and, of course, in training down, they still walk. But Saul brought his army, or was planning to bring his army down. Now, how much had Saul learned about God through all of these things that have transpired? 
Very good. <laughs> he says, you read in this passage, he says, God has delivered him, David, into my hands. Now this is the man who had just in the previous chapter murdered 85 priests of the tabernacle. And he thinks God is delivering David into his hands. This reminds me of people in our society who claim to be Christians, they go to church, they may even be in the church, and yet they openly violate the clear teaching of Scripture. All the while proclaiming that they are children of God and that it is not for anyone else to judge because it's only between them and God. As if there is a different gospel or a, a different scripture for them than there is for us. When I, when I thought about that, the scripture came to mind that you know right well, and let me just turn to it and read it quickly from uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Anytime somebody says, well, you know, uh, I live by a different gospel. Well, okay, you do. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture, which means, of course, also 1 Samuel, is inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Now, um, those words can all be viewed as um, having a bit of a negative impact sometimes. If we're walking in violation of the Word of God, reproof, correction, training, is the idea of bringing one back into alignment with the Word of God. That the man of God, the woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We cannot carry out the good works of God if we're living in violation of His Word, period. Most of you are, are well aware of the fact that there was... Uh, in this past year, this woman who married this millionaire and decided she didn't want to be married to this millionaire and was in the newspaper and all this stuff, and then she posed for Playboy and she said, well, I'm a good born-again Christian, and it's just between me and God what I do. Well, you know, it fits right in here to me with this same kind of mentality. Uh, we cannot claim to be the child of God and live in violation of His Word. Because Jesus said, you are my disciple if you do what? What I say. Well, if you read what, David, uh, what Jesus says, it's not real broad in terms of fleshly living. You know, it's, it's, there's freedom in Christ, but it's freedom to do His will and what we've been made to do. But when we follow the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's outside the framework of God's will. And a person who lives that way consistently, I really believe, does not know the Lord any more than Saul did. So Saul summoned his army to do the God's will, <laughs> capture David. He, he believed he had finally trapped the fox. Ah, David has outfoxed himself and he's now inside the city and I'll surround the city with my, my soldiers and David will be forced to surrender or watch this whole population starve to death. Now, if he went there to deliver the population of the city from the attacking Philistines, is he going to be willing to watch that whole population die for his sake? No, he'll surrender to me and I will have my man. Well, obviously David had friends in the court because the word came down that Saul was planning to besiege the city. So David did the wise thing. He immediately went to the Lord, Abiathar, 
bring the ephod and get the Urim and Thummim and let's talk to God. And David's questions were very specific and God's responses were very terse. Uh, David says, will Saul come? And God says, Saul will come. Will the people of, of Keilah give me into uh, their ha uh, Saul's hands? Yes, they will. <laughs> well, that's all David needed to know from the Lord, and so he decides to vacate the city. Now, why would he ask those questions if in his mind he didn't have the thought that, hey, the walls of this city are strong. This is double-gated, double-barred city. If Saul comes down, I can just get up the wall and do this at him, you know, and, and we'll be fine. It seems as if he thought he could stay secure inside the city, but it, of course, would require that the people of the city be on his side and support him. Even now that he has 600 men, how he went from 400 to 600, we're not told. It suddenly he's got 200 more men here. But even with 600 men, he could not resist Saul's attack from the outside and also have to fight the population within the walls. And so David knew that he would have to vacate the city. And so before Saul could get his troops together and get down the mountain to besiege the city of Keilah, David escaped into the wilderness with his 600 men, undoubtedly going through the forest of Hereth and picking up the uh, hangers-on that were still there, the families of the 600, and their baggage and their equipment, and then moving off into the wilderness. Saul, of course, got word that David was gone, and so he said, well, forget that idea. There's no point in going down and laying siege to the city after David has already escaped. So for the next months, David and his men are hiding in the strongholds of the wilderness of Ziph, which was located on the eastern side of the Judean highlands. I'll speak a little bit more about it here in a minute, but these are the Judean highlands through here. And so we're, we're talking in general <clears throat> about a region out over in here more or less. We'll, we're going to be talking about several wildernesses in, in the next couple of chapters uh, of 1 Samuel. This is a very formidable region. Saul, we're told, sought him daily, but Saul was never able to find him. And if you went there, you'd understand why Saul wasn't able to find him. Actually, going there, you have to figure, well, it would be a hard place to find somebody, but if you had enough men, you could. Uh, so we have to realize there was a God factor in all of this. But I, I like to notice the contrast here uh, between verse 7, <clears throat> where Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. Now look at verse 14 at the end of it. But God did not deliver him <coughs> into his hand. By their fruits you shall know them. The prophet whose prophecy does not come true is a false prophet, period. End of argument. I'm not saying Saul was a prophet but I'm extracting from this a more general concept. We have a lot of people today who claim to be prophets of God, and yet their prophecies do not come true. And yet they function within the evangelical church in many cases. And they have a lot of followers. Saul tried to convince himself, of course, and that all that was around him, that God was on his side, and that David was really the enemy. Public enemy number one, you know, reward poster up here. 10,000 shekels for the capture of this man, dead or alive. But all along, he is literally fighting against the truth. Unfortunately for this Saul, there's no point of conversion like there was the later Saul of Tarsus, who also fought against God. But God met him on the road of Damascus, 
and he was a transformed man. This Saul, unfortunately, does not have such an encounter. But this reminded me of the Pharisees in the New Testament. We're so blinded by their religiosity that they couldn't even see the long hope for Messiah when he stood in front of them and they heard his voice speak to them. Let me just read a couple of verses from the 12th chapter of Matthew. Matthew 12, reading at verse uh, 9. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. It was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. He was not functioning within their box of religion. They had developed their own tradition, their religiosity. They had built this box around God, and this is how God functioned. And when the Messiah came and functioned outside their box, oh, they couldn't handle it. Religiosity is one of the biggest problems that we face in the world, and particularly in America, where we have 17 million billion religions and versions of Christianity. Being so locked into your narrow interpretation that you can't see the truth if it hits you in the face. And so it was with Saul. He was blind. He built his own little concept of who God was and how he was okay before God in spite of the fact he was violating God's word every time he turned around. There's no blindness. In my, in, in my estimation, there is no blindness in the world greater than self-righteous religiosity. You know, us and our narrow little group, we've got the answers and nobody else has the answer. Which is only true, of course, as long as you're talking about people who believe thoroughly in the Word of God as the written version of the in incarnate Christ, the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What is the truth? The truth is here in this Word. Others come along, of course, and create their own little versions of it. Joseph Smith in his version, you know, Mary Baker Eddy in her version, and Charles Tez Russell with his version, and, and others come along. And, of course, they present another gospel, which, of course, Paul in Galatians said, if someone comes along and preaches another gospel, even if he says he got it from an angel, huh, it's almost like he knew about Joseph Smith and Moroni. It's not true. It's got to be the message which I have preached, Paul said. It is Satan's most effective tool in keeping men and women out of the kingdom of God. Most effective tool. I've always said, and I've mentioned this before, that I believe that if Satan can't keep a person from coming to the truth, he'll push him clear through the truth to some kind of weird extreme distortion of the truth. David and his men are hiding in the deserts in Judah. And David recorded his feelings in a poetic prayer. We all understand the concept of thirst. And he's in the desert, he's in the wilderness. Thirst would be a common uh, problem that they faced. But in this case, he applies it metaphorically into his relationship with God during this time of flight from Saul's pursuit. And we see this most clearly, I believe, 
in the 63rd Psalm, which is believed to have been written during this period of David's life. I'd like to read that psalm. It's brief, but it's very significant, I think, in helping us to understand how deeply we need God. O God, you are my God, and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you've ever been in the wilderness of Judea, you can see it as plain as day. It is bone dry. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyous lips. I will remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. That last phrase is very encouraging because we live in a country full of lies. From the top echelons of our society, lies, lies, and more lies. We hear all the time. And unfortunately, the bulk of the people in our society either believe the lies or, or pretend like the lies are true. But one day that will be stopped, and we can be grateful for that. Verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph, Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. He said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his own house. Verse 15 of this passage merely states that Saul did exactly what David said he would do back in verse, that, that God had said that he would do back in verse 11. The wilderness of Ziph is just a small portion of the greater Judean wilderness, which stretches all along this, this region here, particularly along the shore of the Dead Sea. So the wilderness of Ziph is just a portion of it. We're also going to find that there's a wilderness of Maon and there's several wilderni, is that the plural of wildernesses? <laughs> Several wildernesses in here, which is just a, a regional name. of. It's like going to Australia, and, and the whole of central Australia is a desert, and yet there's, the, there's actually a Simpson desert out over there. But there's a Victorian desert and the Great Sandy Desert. I mean, they're all one desert, but they each have different names. And so it is over here. It's all one wilderness, but it's given name according to the nearest town to that particular portion of the wilderness in the nearest town, in this case, is Ziph. This wilderness extends along the western shore of the Dead Sea. Let me explain to you why we have it. 
all of Europe and the Near East is subject to cyclonic precipitation, which comes in just as it does here to California. We receive most of our rain from cyclones that come in from the Gulf of Alaska. So Europe receives most of its cyclonic rain from the region of uh, Iceland. In fact, they call it the Icelandic Low. And, and so the cyclones come in to Europe that way. So they come from the northwest just as our storms come from the northwest. Uh, it, it's almost a mirror image. And, and so the storms sweep in here and they come across the Mediterranean and then they hit land here. And as you come across here, there's a plain, then it rises in the Shefalah and then you hit the highlands. So the air masses are forced to rise. This creates what is known as adiabatic cooling. As, as the air masses rise, they expand, they cool. And as they cool, they reach the dew point and the precipitation in the air condensed and it drops out. So it rains on the uh, lowlands and up through the top of the highlands. But as soon as the air mass passes over the highlands, it sinks into the basin, the graben, the downfaulted area of the Arabah where you have the uh, Dead Sea. And it, it goes through compressional heating. And so as the air masses sink, they're, they're compacted and that creates heating and so the moisture that's left in it is not going to condense and not only that it becomes drying. We, we think of it here as Santa Ana winds, Chinook winds, that kind of thing which is an experience we have in North America. Uh, and so as these air masses come down they dry. And so this creates a rain shadow effect and this rain shadow effect exists throughout the basin. Just as you come over the crest of the Geodean Highlands, uh, down a little ways, a few, maybe a thousand feet or so, you pass the Isahyat, uh, which is known as the four-inch Isahyat, uh, line connecting points of equal precipitation. As you cross that line, uh, you move into an area which is true desert. I mean, it has so little precipitation and so much potential evaporation and transpiration that it is true desert. And so it's very, very dry there. The Dead Sea wouldn't be there if it weren't for the Jordan River. There's not enough precipitation falling in the surrounding hills to create a sea there. And so the Jordan River, which comes from the wetlands of Mount Hermon, or Hermon, creates that sea. And that's why today the Dead Sea is rapidly shrinking because the Jordan River is being extracted to water uh, Israel and, and parts of Jordan. And of course the Sea of Galilee is at one of the all-time lows right now. The Sea of Galilee is, is, is drying up too because there hasn't been adequate precipitation in the Holy Land. We can pray for that part of the world that God would pour out not only physical rain, of course, but his spiritual rain on that nation. The high point of the Judean highlands is right near Hebron, where it's about 3,000 feet above sea level. And from there, it sinks to the surface of the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. So you have a drop of 4,300 feet. Well, the distance is only 18 miles. So you drop 4,300 feet in 18 miles, that's what, 240 feet per mile approximately. It's, it's a fairly uh, significant drop as you move down into the Dead Sea region. Now David had been a shepherd all the years of his youth in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem is uh, located right up here in the Judean Highlands and when you're in Bethlehem you see this very clearly. Bethlehem is, is near the high point of that portion of the Judean Highlands. As you look from Bethlehem to the east, it just suddenly dries out like crazy. There's a feature over there called the Herodian, which was built by Herod the Great as a fortress, and it's out there, and you look back at Bethlehem from there, and all around this, it's very dry. 
And so David had herded sheep out in this wilderness. So he was familiar with the wilderness, and he had talked to other shepherds who had operated further to the south. So David had some concept of where the springs were. If you didn't know where the springs were, you were a dead duck if you were thrown into that wilderness, because you don't go down to the Dead Sea and drink it. No, you don't. You could, but you won't live long. Drink ocean water, you'll go crazy. This will get you there a whole lot faster because the Dead Sea water uh, in a good year is more than 25% salt, which is, you know, what, eight times out of the ocean. And now with the drying up of the Dead Sea, I don't know what it is. It's probably a third salt. That's why you float so high when you swim in it. <laughs> it's hard to get wet in the Dead Sea. So David had certain firsthand experience from living in this wilderness. And so he had an advantage over Saul here in that matter. But Saul had a couple of advantages too. He had a lot more men than David had, and he had the power to bribe or intimidate people to tell him where David was. And that's going to be a problem David keeps running into. People keep telling on him as to where he is in order to get uh, you know, favors from, from Saul. Like Pancho Villa, 3,000 years later, David, however, was never caught. But the reason was different. Pancho Villa, you may remember, not from living when he was alive so much, as in 1916, Pancho Villa invaded the United States to create trouble between the United States and Mexico, which he did. And the United States Army, under General John Blackjack Pershing, was sent down into Mexico to capture Pancho Villa. <laughs> Run around in Mexico in Dodges and Buicks trying to catch uh, Pancho Villa, as well as horses. They chased him around for a year and they never caught Pancho Villa. But Pancho Villa was running around in a quarter of a million square miles of territory. David had less than a thousand square miles to hide from Saul. Less than a thousand square miles. So why was David preserved? Because God protected him. God, and Saul could have gotten enough men to just do a, a clean sweep through the whole region. I'll get David one way or the other. But God blinded Saul and his men to David's location. Why? Because God had promised David, you will be the next king of Israel. And so in many ways, he had a suit of armor, you might say, in that sense. Well, I think given the hour that we'll have to pick up here next time and uh, talk about Horesh, where David is hiding here, and the Jonathan's visit. It's very important because we see in this man Jonathan, Jonathan an incredible person a man of God that is on par with David, really, in many ways.